From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, political analyst Joe Tuman returns to discuss the controversial memo recently released by Representative Devin Nunez. Does this memo exonerate President Donald Trump? And what does it say about the relationship between the White House and the FBI? That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. For several weeks, Republicans have talked about the memo written by the staff of House Intelligence Committee Chair Devin Nunez. Last week, the memo much to the chagrin of Democrats as well as members of the FBI, was released to the public, prompting myriad questions. What does it say? Perhaps more importantly, what doesn't it say? What are we exactly to make of it? Did the memo, as President Donald Trump suggested over the weekend, exonerate him from any wrongdoing in the ongoing investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller? Have we reached new political terrain? where the Federal Bureau of Investigation is openly in the crosshairs of the White House. To help us make sense of these questions and others, I'm happy to be joined once again by political analyst Joe Tooman. Joe Tooman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Baron, always a pleasure. You know, you're getting to be my uh, Mariano Rivera. When things get tough, I I just call Joe Tooman to come in and close us out so we'll all understand it better. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to do so. Well, why don't we begin uh, by having you offer a, a, a distillation of the issues surrounding the release of the memo issued by the staff of um, Intelligence House Intelligence Chair uh, Devin Nunez. Okay. Well, the, I think the, the working from the, uh, the response of people backwards, um, I think the first issue we should consider is the president's claim after the fact of the release of this memo that this cleared him in the Russian probe, and we can talk about that. The quick answer on that from me is it absolutely did not clear him, um, but he is, and I think this shows that it, it, it's clear that he hadn't even read the memo, or if he did, he didn't understand what he was reading, because uh, it, it clearly does not do that. So that's one issue we can talk about. Uh, the second we can talk about is uh, contemporaneous with that, um, the status of the Democrats' response as a memo um, to the one that Devin Nunes's staffers had written. Um, the Democratic response, which I, I think was authored by several people, including perhaps uh, Adam Schiff, who's the, the, the ranking member for the Democrats on this committee, um, essentially are using their memo as a, a critique, if you like, or a, a, a list, if you want, of the inaccuracies or the evidence, the places where evidence was not uh, offered by the Republicans in their memo. Um, which would provide a different context for some of their claims. Um, and so, you know, a thing we can talk about is the second issue that's relevant today, on Monday, that, you know, several days after this was released, is um, will that Democratic uh, memo get out? Uh, is this president, who already feels threatened by this process, going to de- you know, declassify that and, and allow them to do it? And as an ancillary issue, I suppose, might the Democrats just, you know, leak it themselves? Um, what will happen to them if they do. Um, a third possible issue that we could look at in all of this, a third or fourth, whatever number I'm on now. Um, You're on three, Joe. You're doing three, fine. <laughs> okay. So I think a, a third issue uh, you know, has to do with the effect of all this on the Miller investigation. And, again, uh, that remains to be seen. But uh, I think if, if, uh, if Republicans – uh, who are supporters of the president and those inside the White House were hoping that this memo would you know, deal the knockout blow uh, and demonstrate once and for all that uh, you know, the, the allegations that the Russians helped the president um, you know, were false. Uh, then you know, the, the question is, does it have any impact on the Mueller investigation? And for those who don't want to listen to the whole answer, the short answer is it has no effect on it at all. If anything, the president's behavior, I think, strengthens um, our sense that uh, Mueller really has in corners right now. So those would be three, I think, uh, talking points, and you could certainly add more um, uh, that I think are worth addressing this morning. Well, well, you know, one of the things um, 
And I'll, I'll um, dive into the, um, the, the the Miller piece uh, to start. Do, do you think the rationale, or um, and I, I know I'm asking you to think for others, but just in your opinion, do you think the release of the memo was a sort of a byproduct of a of, of sort of a, a, a Machiavellian uh, political approach, where 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 you you um, because Mueller, as you said, is going uh, to sort of insulate the president from, from going after him on substantive issues, so you sort of sort of lower the bar on the whole process. I mean, do, do you see any of that at a play here? Well, uh, in, in a sense, uh, let's back up for just a moment on this. If we're talking now about you know the president, um, I think the truth in all this that nobody has really gone back to because we've been caught up in talking about the the. Uh, hucksterism, if you like that expression of, of this, we're going to release a memo soon, you know, and then teasing us as to what it was so that we would all be waiting with bated breath to see what it was, um, was an effort at, in distraction that was successful. And I'm sorry to say that many of us in news media were a little bit complicit because we kept hyping it as well because that gets listeners, readers, viewers, and the rest of it. But the fact is um, there was very little there there. Um, the, the, the reality is that we've forgotten about is that Michael Flynn has pleaded guilty to a lesser charge. And nobody offers a star witness like Flynn a lesser charge unless Flynn has something to trade really important in return. To make a fishing analogy, uh, uh, Flynn is the little fish. The whale is the one you want, and the whale is Donald Trump. And uh, there's no way that, that uh, Mueller would have offered Flynn a deal like that unless Flynn had plenty to trade in return. This is a man who is inside the campaign, who has firsthand knowledge about uh, entreaties to the Russians in terms of, of, of re- reducing the sanctions that the Obama administration had put on them. Uh, he had already links uh, and was paid for visits to give presentations and the rest of it in, in Russia. He had links to oligarchs over there. Um, and he had a consulting business over here that we sort of have focused on his connections with Turkey, but he also had connections with Russians. And so this is a guy who was in a position to know a lot, and Trump trusted him implicitly. Um, I think that, that Flynn has already given the Mueller investigation and the investigators a lot of information, and the reason we're still sort of in this process, because believe me, if Robert Mueller looked at this, all the stuff you know, that was deduced and said there's nothing here, he would have closed this down a long time ago. But uh, when you have a lot of stuff that's been given over by someone who's otherwise going to go to jail, you know, so they tell you, to, and then you have to get out and verify it, um, uh, you've got something there. Uh, I've been very unimpressed, honestly, uh, Ryan, with, uh, with Trump's legal team, with Paul Manafort's legal team. Uh, with Manafort's assistance legal team, with Michael Flynn's, you know, legal, well, maybe Michael Flynn's people were the smartest because they cut a deal when they could. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, you would think that people around the president would be advising him, you're in serious jeopardy, and taking actions like the kind you do when you get on Twitter or you play games uh, with the laws or you threaten institutions like our intelligence community or the FBI. Um, all smack of obstruction and are forgetting the legal consequences of it at face value, the behavior of someone who's behaving like he's guilty. And uh, that they have not muzzled him is either a tribute to Trump's uh, narcissist personality refusing to be told what to do or their incompetence or both. But the bottom line is he knows he's in trouble. And that's that's kind of why, why this memo had to come out in some ways. The Republicans were... We're hoping that his supporters, I don't want to blame all Republicans, the president's supporters, headed by, for example, Devin Nunes, um, believed that doing this memo was an end around. It would, you know, by claiming that there was bias, that somehow um, this would uh, discredit the, the purpose for the Mueller investigation. But nothing in that memo uh, challenges anything that Mr. Flynn might have told and and you bet you can bet that what he gave them was a mother load worth of material. You know, Joe, I um, um, periodically go to a place here in Winston Salem called Cranky's for coffee. Uh-huh. And um, this, this, is, this is a gentleman that I always run into. I run into him periodically, and so I ran into him on Friday, 
And he asked me, um, this is right after you had confirmed that you would be on the show. He asked me, um, what's my show going to be this week? And I told him what the show was going to be. And he, and he said to me, well, the more I know, the less I understand. So, so Joe, explain, uh, his name's Bill, explain to Bill what about this memo he should understand. <laughs> okay, Bill, this is for you. And the next time I'm at Cranky's, coffee's on you, dude. Okay. <laughs> what you should know about the Nunes memo, which is, first of all, it shouldn't be called the Nunes memo because Nunes not only didn't read all the underlying intelligence for it, um, he didn't even write it. His staff wrote it. It's plainly a political document. It's not a legal document. And it's a document that has selectively used evidence that was classified intelligence that the FBI and the Department of Justice turned over to this committee. And, and it was written in such a way as to imply, Bill, if you're following me on this, um, and the reason you should be concerned about it, it was written in such a way as to imply that anybody investigating uh, uh, the president and or members of his campaign staff was doing so not because there was a reason to be concerned from a criminal perspective of what they've been doing, but only because those people in the FBI were Democrat-loving, Republican-hating, Trump-bashing um, liberals. And, and uh, they need to be rooted out of the Department of Justice and the FBI. Bill, you should be concerned about that memo because the FBI actually has an enormous amount of integrity. Uh, its agents and uh, its lawyers are, are restricted by policy and by law from defending themselves when they're accused of this kind of bias. They just kind of have to take it. And independence of groups like the FBI from the White House or from other branches of government is, is significant if uh, they can't be part of any political uh, gamesmanship. Um, when that happens, Bill, uh, then people don't trust the FBI. Um, if you have an FBI witness in a trial and the FBI has been tarnished the way the president is trying to do it or the way that memo that we're talking about uh, cast aspersions on the FBI, it's dangerous. Uh, because uh, a jury might not believe an FBI agent who's a witness in an important case simply because of this kind of tarring and feathering. Um, you also can't get people to give you uh, confessions or to share information and intelligence with you if you're an FBI agent when this sort of thing is happening because now they're going to be wondering, well, if I share stuff with you, is it going to end up in a political document that some idiot in Congress thinks everybody should know? And the FBI can't do their job if uh, people won't talk to them. I mean, this is not the KGB, Russian you know, uh, intelligence group. We don't kidnap people and torture them. The FBI doesn't anyway uh, to get them to give information. That information is given voluntarily. And people voluntarily give up information to law enforcement officials uh, that they trust and that, that uh, are acting in a reasonable way. When you attack, as this memo has, a group like the FBI or all of the people who work in the Department of Justice generally, you undermine their efficiency and you make it very difficult for them to do their jobs. This is, uh, this is the, the biggest reason you should be concerned about this. You know, Joe, one of the things that we often hear, um, especially regarding uh, Republican talking points, is that there is no collusion with Russia as if uh, this investigation is solely about whether or not the Trump campaign team colluded with Russia. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than that. And could you talk a little bit about that, if you would, as well? Sure. Well, the, the, uh, the investigation uh, it began, before we get back to collusion with uh, the Russians, really being focused on uh, the Russian intervention in the 2016 election. Um, there is consensus in our intelligence community. So that's, uh, again, if we've got Bill listening on this one, we're talking about our CIA. We're talking about the National Security Agency. We're talking about the counterintelligence uh, portion of uh, the FBI. But that, that's part of their mission as well. And uh, all of the other, you know, uh, we have a director of national intelligence that oversees this. There are many different uh, bodies, if you like. And, and I haven't even gotten to the Defense Department, which also has intelligence services and uh, you know, gets, gets information and passes that along. We're supposed to coordinate that. Um, all of these uh, have, for the most part, concluded 
uh, without any fear of contradiction, that the Russians intervene in our election. And they intervened in several different ways. Um, uh, one of which, if we're talking about the influence of social media, was to use uh, these bots, which are um, a slang, if you like, for robots, but it's an automatic way of uh, you write algorithms online, you write computer code, I'm sorry, I'll try not to use that kind of technology or technical talk, and uh, when somebody posts a story uh, which uses the following words or something like that, these bots automatically re release responses to that, which would go to that person's social media account, like a Facebook page, and just bury you. I was, earlier this year, a victim of that. I had close to 6,500, that's 6,500 comments on a post that I wrote, uh, I think back in September or October, um, uh, on, a, on an issue that was critical of the White House and the Russian investigation. And the vast majority of those things uh, were uh, launched by bots, right? Because I guess unknowingly myself, I had written something that where the right configuration of words triggered that response. Now, those bots uh, appeared, that, that technology appeared because Facebook and other kinds of social media sold that space, allowed them entry. And uh, they were able to do their bidding. We're now rethinking that whole process. But frankly, policing against that um, is always, you have to wait for something bad to happen and then you figure out how to change your policy, but they're always a step ahead of us. And the, the Russians have very good computer people. Their hackers are amongst the best. And setting up something like bots is, is not actually that technically difficult to do. But catching it and knowing that that's what those are, that's tough. So that's just one example of something they did to affect the public discourse, the way we all talk about what we think we mean. Social media is a very popular way for lots of people who are tired of listening to you, me, and Byron on radio. Sometimes people get their political news from, from uh, the Internet, from social media. And in a similar vein, uh, we know as well um, that the, uh, the Russians were involved uh, in other ways in trying to undermine uh, the, the 2016 campaign. It's, I think, pretty clear now that uh, their people um, were – their hackers that they have uh, working for, uh, their FSB, which is the, uh, their successor to the KGB. The KGB is what they used to call their spy services during the Soviet Union. Now it's the – Russian uh, government, and so this is FSB. And the FSB, as well as their military intelligence, which is the GRU, have their own hacker divisions. And uh, it's pretty clear that uh, a group of hackers from both hacked into the Democratic National Committee and stole all those emails, and they also hacked into Hillary Clinton's emails as well. And uh, we know another way that they affected the outcome of this election was they did a data dump. They released a bunch of those emails, especially some that would be embarrassing to the Democratic Party, the worst of which showed that the Democratic Party had not been kind to, um, uh, to Bernie. Bernie Sanders, yes. Bernie Sanders. And that was meant to divide Democrats against each other. That stuff came out uh, about a week after Donald Trump, in a different kind of media, this time news media, was being roasted in news media um, for saying what he said about women, uh, that he wants to grab them by the blank. You remember that, I'm yes. sure. And the moment that Mrs. Clinton's emails were released uh, by uh, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who himself had gotten them from a hacker, um, who clearly had been coordinated with the Russians, uh, the news focused on the emails and stopped talking about Trump. And uh, frankly, for most politicians, the, the kind of things that he said on the air, grab a woman by the blank, would have not only lost someone an election, if you worked somewhere, it would make you lose your job. Yeah, well, you know? and, and, and so this is just another example. I'm sorry I'm giving you no, one. No, no, it's fine. This is fine. Go right ahead. an example of how the Russians got involved. And so this is what I meant when I said this is not make-believe. These things are real. And the Russians already had a history of doing this for the last several years in different European elections in Western Europe as well. And uh, that's how we knew about this. So uh, that's, I think, the, 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 the real reason that we're looking at this in the first place. You know, you know, one of the things I, I was struck by, and I wonder how, how, how do you reconcile this, um, uh, South Carolina Representative uh, Jeff Duncan, um, he, he gets a pass, I guess, to some, well, he gets, I think he gets a little pass because he's younger. But um, basically harangued the FBI, saying in the history of the FBI, nothing like this has ever happened. But then he goes on to say that, you know, 
this should be the end of the investigation. This memo proves that this should be the end of the investigation. Not only did we have Joe Tuman on record saying um, it should not be the end of the investigation, it doesn't end it. We also have a representative, a retiring representative from South, also from South Carolina, Trey Gowdy, saying the same thing. I wonder, how do you reconcile those sort of contradictory Republican talking points? Well, I, I, I think it, it starts by acknowledging that even though Democrats and Republicans tend to sort of be polarizing and it's an all or nothing uh, with one another, that you, know, we, you, you advance your own self by demonizing the other side. The truth is there are good and bad people, or good and incompetent people, and also ill-willed and not-so-competent people in both parties. Uh, the Democrat has their share. We, I'm a Democrat. We have our share as well. And uh, so while I have not loved uh, everything Trey Gowdy has done, for example, with respect to the Benghazi investigation, I thought he went way overboard on that and, and uh, conflated it into something else. I think he spoke with some integrity as a formal, uh, former, I think he's a prosecutor, um, who you know, probably looked at this evidence and said, uh, stuff that you're claiming, the conclusions you're reaching is not what the evidence says. And uh, he recognizes as well that uh, as someone who had that legal background, um, that uh, claiming that, that this somehow exonerates the president and proves that the Russian investigation from Bob Mueller is biased and false and should be disbanded is certainly not what that memo proved. And so uh, I think it, it, the first answer to your question is in terms of reconciling, it's, it's, it's uh, that sometimes people that you disagree with on other things can still be good people. And, you know, you, you, when they look at something, they can say accurately that it is what they think it is. And I think that's what happened here. Now, we should remember if we're talking about Trey Gowdy, he's not going to run for re-election, and that maybe factors into this as well. He's done in Congress. And, and there is this amazing thing that happens to politicians in both parties when they're in their last year of their last term, their final term. Um, they get remarkably bipartisan, and uh, they're unbelievably honest, just unbelievably honest. And maybe some of that is, is, uh, is happening here. He's not worried about what will happen to him in terms of the party um, because he's about to be done. And so that might explain his motivations. But the important thing is what he said. And it's, it's not different than what John McCain has said or others uh, that have looked at this. Most of the people who are defending the president uh, on this, uh, on the Russia investigation generally, uh, on the Republican side, have not echoed his sentiment that this exonerates him and means that the, you know, the investigation should be closed off. I think most people with half a brain are looking at this and saying, you got to let this run its course um, because shutting it down now adds to a different charge, which is obstruction of justice. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Pinnacle analyst Joe Tuman. Uh, Joe, you know, one of the ironies here, there's sort of a historical irony, I guess, that we know that the FBI in the past has been weaponized politically. I'm thinking the tenure of um, longtime head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. Absolutely. You yeah. know? So, so the FBI does have that history. But, but to my knowledge, um, and maybe you can help me out here, we've I've never seen such open uh, – infighting between the White House and the FBI for public consumption? Um, I, I, I would agree with you on that. I, I don't think I, I can recall anything like this. You know, one of the things that made Hoover's era different um, was that this is essentially kind of like an, a, a law enforcement entity that he created. Um, he used it ruthlessly for his own purposes uh, during the 1960s when uh, Lyndon Johnson was the president after President Kennedy was assassinated. Um, Hoover is you know, famous for having sent Johnson material that, uh, uh, according to his biographers, uh, Johnson would use as reading material before he went to bed. And the more salacious, the naughtier, the nastier, the better. And Johnson, who was an old congressional pro in the United States Senate, sometimes would use that stuff that, that Hoover – talk about opposition research. I mean, this was stuff that they were <laughs> digging up on everybody, including members of the government. And uh, rather than prosecute, you know, Hoover would share this stuff. And so there's a famous story about 
um, uh, I think it was a civil rights uh, era legislation piece, um, that there was someone uh, that was uh, either from the – it might have been a, a Democratic – representative but from the south so he's a southern democrat which means not likely to vote for civil rights necessarily in that time period in the early to mid 1960s and uh, so hoover gave him this material and apparently the guy was in new york i think it was on a trip and was in a hotel room with a uh, what is a delicate way to say this a a courtesan a, a, a courtesan an escort <laughs> okay a working, a working person, and Cortison uh, was on my GRE exam. That's the only reason I know. Go. That's the only okay. reason I know the word. <laughs> so as long as our listeners understand what I'm talking about, someone you're paying for the services of, and, and uh, Johnson got him on the phone in his hotel room, and uh, started reading from, according to the story, uh, the file that Hoover had sent him, and said, "You know, there's a vote going on, and I think." Uh, your voters would not appreciate knowing that when you needed to be voting on this important piece of legislation, you were paying for the services of blank uh, in this place in New York, of all places. And the guy got religion very quickly and got back to Washington <laughs> and cast the vote. And so Johnson might have found some of that stuff kind of useful, but goodness, uh, that's not really an appropriate use of this. I mean, the, the modern-day... FBI we have, which really since 9-11 has also taken on this counterintelligence function, uh, maybe even a little bit before 9-11, but I mean, I think 9-11 very much influenced this, um, uh, casts it uh, as a domestic, if you like, uh, law enforcement entity that also has some intelligence or counterintelligence capacities and is still dedicated to defending the United States, not just from domestic crime, but also from foreign intervention that can constitute a crime on our soil. And so, uh, you know, we've, we've changed things. We now uh, give uh, the director of the FBI a 10-year term because we don't want them to, for exactly what's going on right now, we don't want them to be worried every time somebody new comes in every four years or eight years that suddenly um, that person's going to get rid of the director or change things in the FBI. It's supposed to be independent is the idea. And... And that's it, it, because it is independent and outside of the political process. That's also why they have that rule that says that lawyers and investigators aren't supposed to publicly defend themselves, right, when, the, when these aspersions are cast. you just got to take it and keep doing your job because the moment you defend yourself, you're getting involved in the political discourse, and that's not what you're supposed to do. James Comey can talk about this stuff now because he's no longer the director, and when he did talk about it before, it was only when he was uh, summoned to a committee hearing or when he had a private conversation with the president, right? Um, but you're not supposed to talk about this stuff otherwise uh, and defend yourself uh, when you're working. And, and the reason you do that is they're supposed to be outside the political process. The, the, in a nutshell, the difference today is that, that iteration, if you like, that version of the FBI, which is a really smart one, which took us a long time to get to away from what J. Edgar Hoover had done, is now being threatened by a president who keeps forcing his will and forcing the existence, if you like, much less the motivations of the FBI, back into a political discourse that they don't belong in, they should not be a part of. And as I said earlier, doing so really threatens the integrity of the FBI, and frankly, doing that undermines their effectiveness. They can't be an effective organization if they keep getting stuck in this political discussion. You know, Joe, Joe, just things uh, slightly on that thread. Uh, it wasn't that long ago uh, that we witnessed a bipartisan red line in the sand that protected Robert Mueller. From your perspective, does that bipartisan red line still exist? I'm, I'm sorry, say, say it for me one more I, time. I, I said, you know, there was a bipartisan red line that sort of protected Robert Mueller when this when this investigation first started. Yeah. Now, does that, that does that red line, line in the sand, if you will, does that line in the sand still exist for Robert Mueller in a bipartisan way? Boy, you, you've asked a 64, I won't even say a $1,000 question, <laughs> a $64 million question. Um, I think if you had asked me this question, like, three days after the, the Congress passed and the president signed the tax reform measure, that I would have said, no, that, that line's gone. Um, because in the moment, lots of Republicans, including people like Mitch McConnell, who had been on the receiving end of some of Trump's nastiness, right, mm -hmm. um, 
were singing the president's praises, people who, who couldn't stand him, who didn't like Republicans I'm talking about, who didn't like what Trump was doing to transforming the Republican Party into this nastiness that kind of reflects his personality, um, not being gentlemanly, not being collegial, not being uh, cooperative or collaborative, um, didn't like that. But I think Republicans in that moment, Byron, looked at the possibilities legislatively for you know, what could be if you had a president who, let's be honest, and I don't mean this as a, well, I do mean this as a criticism, I guess I will say that. The president does not present as someone who gets the details. He doesn't seem like someone who reads a lot the reports from inside of the White House, which have been leaked, but we'll go by them, because it certainly, it be, what I'm about to say comports with the way he presents himself in public. He doesn't look like a deep thinker. Um, uh, reportedly, he doesn't read the, the, uh, the uh, booklets that people put together for him, the position papers, the white papers, and the rest of it. So they have to do bullet point little summaries for him because that's about the speed that he's at. And I'm not saying he's stupid, um, but he has no experience in government. So this is all kind of new to him. And he doesn't appear to be someone who makes an effort to know all the details. So if you're in Congress and you just got a piece of legislation that was as impactful as this tax reform package through, and they even got a, a, a chance to, to, to get rid of the, the Obama-era mandate you know, for uh, Obamacare thrown out, too, in that legislation, they just put everything in the kitchen sink in there, you might be looking at the, this after the fact, thinking, well, gosh, do I want to be part of a process that gets rid of Trump, or do I want to keep him because... And from a self-interested perspective, it's good for my legal, my political career, pardon me, in Congress, uh, if I have a president who's just going to rubber stamp what we say and is not detailed enough to know um, what questions to ask, and he's just kind of leaving that to us. I mean, Trump has said many times, put something in front of me and I'll sign it. Why would you say something like that? You should be saying, give me something I can understand that makes sense to me and I'll think about it and then I'll get back to you. But that's not what he says. He says, put it in front of me and I'll sign it. If you're Mitch McConnell, you're saying, oh, this is the partner I want. So now fast forward a couple of weeks, and the glow, if you like, of the tax reform legislation has faded a little bit. Got some, some good news, but we're still not clear about all of it. Um, but it's also pretty clear, including to those Republicans, um, that uh, the president is still making a big deal about this investigation and challenging institutions like the FBI and the CIA and others, um, the whole intelligence community and still behaving in a way that's really odd, where he refuses to be critical of Vladimir Putin. And uh, these people like McConnell aren't, aren't stupid. They've been around long enough to know that when somebody behaves that way, there's usually a reason. And, uh, and so my original response to your question would have been, if you asked me this, like, let's say, a month ago, yeah, I would say the line has disappeared. But I think the more that the, the GOP behaves in ways like with this memo, which seems like they're enabling someone who has something to hide, right? The Nunes' committee was, with this memo, trying to help the president, who's, who's trying to say there's nothing here, there's no, there's no collusion, now there's no obstruction. The more somebody says that, the more you know that they're saying it because there is collusion and there is obstruction. And if I was a Mitch McConnell or I was another member of Congress who had kind of been defending the president after that legislation... I might be thinking about my own career at this point, because, as I said at the beginning of our interview, I do believe uh, that Michael Flynn has given the president a roadmap on this, and uh, I think... You mean Robert Mueller? Uh, uh, pardon me, I, I've given Robert Mueller. I'll say this again. I do believe that, that Michael Flynn has given Robert Mueller a roadmap on this. Uh, I also think that uh, Paul Manafort's aide, aid, pardon me, who's just gotten new legal counsel has only done that for one reason, and that's that he's agreed to make a deal. Manafort, you know, is suing the Justice Department, saying that Mueller has exceeded his authority, and his assistant was going to go along with that, but now it looks like he's not. Uh, when you get a new legal team this far into it, you're doing that because you're going to take a plea, and you're going to offer. And frankly, I, I think his name is Gates, uh, the assistant. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's right. His name. Um, was in even a better position to know what was going on in the campaign than Michael Flynn, who's in it for longer and also in it after, before and after, and probably is a wealth of information. So uh, nobody's going to make a deal, again, just the same like with Flynn, unless the likelihood of conviction is strong and, and this is your way out of jail or this is your way to a much lesser sentence.
you know, and as I said, Mueller's not interested in these guys. He's, he's, he really is there to make sure that this doesn't go all the way back to Donald Trump. And if it does, um, he'll get him. Uh, Mueller, as I said before, is not about wasting his time or other people's time. If we're, this investigation is still ongoing, it's not because he's trying to you know, waste our tax dollars. It's because there is a there there. And I think that's where this is going in the end. I do think there will be charges. In, in, um, in this current political climate that uh, we're in, is there any way – you mentioned earlier about the Democrats, uh, maybe how they might respond to, to, to the Nunez memo. Yeah. Is there any way the Democrats could respond without appearing to also participate in this hyper-uber-parsonship that we're currently in? Well, uh, I don't know what's in uh, the memo, though I, I can guess on some of it. I think the best thing for them to do um, is simply to, uh, in a way that does not uh, expose sources and methods, and so for our listeners who aren't clear what I'm talking about, that when intel people talk about or law enforcement people talk about sources and methods, the, the source is what's the source of the information that you're getting, right? And so you don't want to say things or mention people's names or describe a situation where the information was gathered in such a way that, for example, our adversaries like the Russians could read something like that and say, oh, that means he was talking to Joe, so now we have to cut Joe out, right? Which could be recall Joe or maybe it means eliminate Joe, right? Um, that's the source. The methods are the different ways that you have for extracting information, which could be anything from wiretaps on telephones to surveillance uh, to intercepts of emails or the like. There's a, there are lots of different ways um, that government can do that. And again, you don't want to be tipping people off. So the Democrats, to answer your question, have to be very careful in their statement that they're not doing anything that uh, compromise sources and methods because that would be a real clear uh, signal to the White House to either scrub that information or just to say no to the whole thing, right? Um, politically, in terms of answering your question, I think the best thing for the Democrats to do would simply be to, where they can, without compromising sources and methods, uh, explain the context that was left out. I'll give you an example. If you read the memo, it leads you to the conclusion that the, uh, the, the Steele dossier, written by Christopher Steele, um, was the main evidence that was offered after October of 2016 um, to get a federal judge to issue a warrant to allow the FBI to now do surveillance of this guy, Carter Page. Now, here's what the memo didn't say, and this is what Democrats could say in their own memo. First, uh, uh, Carter Page had been on the radar for the FBI going all the way back, get ready for this, to 2013. It's now 2018, so this is five years of interest in him. They're still interested in him, by the way, right? And five years ago, he was a target, we know, because there was an investigation on this, and the Russian spymasters involved with this got kicked out of the country, right? Um, they targeted him because they thought he would be a good guy to recruit who could help them back then. Now, there's no evidence that he did help them, but he was clearly in communication with them. And so he was a name that was in the FBI and probably the CIA's database early on in this. The FISA warrants that were issued for him, the first of these came, um, uh, the most recent, pardon me, before October of this last year, or, uh, pardon me, of 16, uh, occurred actually, I think it was in July or August of 2016, and that uh, that was the first time they wanted to do Carter Page in particular related to Russian intervention and the rest of it, and the evidence they had was not from this dossier. It was from Australian diplomats um, who were, at least that's the one we know of, uh, who had been tipped off uh, by George Papadopoulos um, uh, sometime before that the Russians had dirt on Hillary Clinton and they were looking to make a deal with the Trump people. and. Uh, I think the, the Australian in London who had drinks uh, with Papadopoulos, when Papadopoulos said this, perhaps he was a little tipsy, um, didn't know what to do with it, but he, you know, the guy who was talked to uh, reported that back. It was their head diplomat, by the way, there. And then they sat on this. And then in that month, when Hillary Clinton's emails, the first data dump was done, uh, the, uh, several of the Australians talked to each other and said, holy crap, this is what Papadopoulos was talking about to our guy a few months ago. We better warn the Americans. 
And they did. And when the FBI got that, that was what they used to get the first FISA warrant. Now, I should say, because the FBI is not going to disclose their other sources, it's very likely that there were other sources that were corroborating this as well. But we know at least it was the Australians who were saying this because Papadopoulos later confessed as he talked, and uh, it is now established that the Australians did warn us. So that was what uh, the Mueller people, uh, pardon me, not Mueller, this is what the FBI used in investigating this to get the first, uh, of, of the newest warrant uh, to, to do a, for a FISA application to do surveillance of Carter Page. Those things only last 90 days, however, and then every 90 days you have to re-up them, right? So by the time we now get to the point where Christopher Steele actually does enter the question, which is in October of 2016, on the eve of the election, right? That's the first time that the FBI gets a look at that document. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bones of contention for the document with the Republicans and the president are the, the claim that, that there was some kind of sex party at a Russian hotel with Russian sex workers and some other behavior that I don't need to say on radio. And also a claim from Michael Cohen's lawyer that uh, the, the document claimed that Steele had been told that Cohen the president's lawyer had made a trip to Prague to meet with Russian officials to plan out how they could coordinate on the campaign. And Cohen said, I never had that meeting on that date in Czechoslovakia. And uh, I will tell you, having read the dossier, that is a very tiny, both of them are very small portions of the dossier. Most of the dossier focuses on Russian attempts to uh, impact the election. And that's where Carter Page comes in. Page 9, if anybody wants to go find the dossier, deals with Carter Page. And uh, here was Christopher Steele um, sharing all the stuff with the FBI, and he happens to mention this stuff about Carter Page. At that point, the investigators asked Steele, do you know George Papadopoulos? And, and uh, Steele had not heard of him. And the reason they asked that was that Steele's dossier was independently confirming what uh, Papadopoulos had already said, for which they already had a warrant. So now when they're going to for what's called a reissuance of the same warrant, right, and there are four of these, you know, I guess this is in, the, in October, that would have been the second or third, whatever it was. Um, uh, the newest information is from Steele. And, and so would they have used some of that in, in getting that re-up, reissued? Sure. Why not, right? Um, uh, was it the only intelligence they had? Clearly not. Absolutely not. And... So a lot was made in that memo about the fact that uh, uh, the McCabe, the outgoing uh, associate director, assistant director of the FBI, had said we wouldn't have asked for this latest um, warrant, FISA warrant, without the Christopher Steele thing. Is making it sound like that the Steele's evidence was the only one they used. Put this in context, which is what a democratic response could do it. In October, they were going to have the 90 days had, uh, had finished. They were going to have to ask again for a new warrant. The newest evidence was Steele's. So when McCabe says we, we wouldn't have done it without this, it's because that was the newest evidence. It didn't mean the evidence was false, and it didn't mean that McCabe was waiting for it because he knew it was biased. It was newest, right? If you're going to get a warrant reissued, you're not going to argue the same thing you did 90 days ago or, or three months ago because the judge is going to say, well, if you haven't dug up anything else, I'm not interested, right? But if you give them the newest material, and there's already a pattern and a history, and you've known about Carter Page going back five years, it's not hard for a judge to put this together, right? The warrant's justified. And frankly, by the way, last thing I'll say, Byron, to reissue a Pfizer warrant, the threshold is a little bit less, right? You're not, you're not, you're not proving probable cause the first time. That was already established with the first warrant, right? You just have to show enough evidence to justify continuing the surveillance. And frankly, everything that Page has done suggested that probably was a valid thing to do. Finally, finally Joe, um, I, I want you to sort of look. I know that was a long explanation. No, it was a great. No, no, no. You don't, you know, that, that's the great thing about the public morality is that you get the time. You don't worry about me cutting you off for a commercial. Okay. So, so that's, <laughs> that, that's the whole point of this show, that, 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 that people want the long answers because people want to think about it and draw their own conclusions. So we yeah. always appreciate you having you on. And, which I'd like for you to, to, to give some historical context here uh, before we let you go. When you think about, you know, the, the last 30 years, if you look at the moment that we're at right now politically and our political discourse, the political climate, 
Um, my war is not yours. It would be unfair to put this solely at the feet of President Trump. I think about the Gingrich impeachment, you know, how we weaponize government shutdowns. Yeah. You know, we, we've made political obstruction a viable tool. You know, I, I think about President Obama, the hyperpartisanship, all of that. Uh, does that not fuel where we are right now? No, I think that's exactly where we are right now. And, uh, you know, I, well, I, I, I will only say this about Mr. President Trump. <clears throat> His personality is um, combative. Uh, it's, he's aggressive. Um, he's a great cheerleader, if you like, you know, for a cause or for, in this case, the country, the whole, you know, the, the salesmanship of make America great again. I mean, who's not going to want to do something that makes our country feel good about itself. I mean, all that stuff is, is very smart um, salesmanship and marketing. And for a guy who has made most of his money now just lending his name, he doesn't get that involved in the construction or the operating of these businesses, but just lending his name to towers that are built, he understands the value of marketing and salesmanship. And I think that when it's done for good causes, that's something that helps us in the end. But, you know, he, he butts up against, uh, as we're looking at Trump's Republican Party, um, uh, his personality, which is corrosive, combative. He, you know, he learned from Roy Cohn early on about how you know if they kill one of yours, kill two of theirs, or something like that. Just you know, go crazy on people, and it, it's not a great way to govern. Um, I think that that in the end, if we're thinking about this sort of uh, zero-sum game that the Republicans and Democrats are both guilty of playing, the president has enabled the worst instincts of both parties to be more combative. I think what it suggests, if we're thinking about where we are at this period in history, Byron, is maybe again reconsidering the fact that, that we really have a two-party system. We like to pretend we're a multi-party democracy, but, you know, the, the libertarians, the greens, the rest of it for which there are voters, they just don't have the numbers or the financial resources. And the Democrats and Republicans are involved in this inter-Nicene brother-against-brother warfare that is still in the end zero-sum. I only I only am up if, I, if you're down uh, by the same amount that I'm up, right? And uh, what we miss in this uh, is, is the spirit of cooperation and bipartisanship and that um, I, don't, I don't measure – I don't have to measure my ability to win by inflicting as much pain on you as I can. We can both win. And uh, – I hope if we're going to stay in a two-party system that we sort of move back to that time when uh, our representatives and our senators spend more time with one another, see each other as human beings, and don't, at least on a public stage, engage in this kind of behavior. Um, I'm not clear that this president is the right person to do that. Um, But, you know, for the Republicans, like I said before, they are legislatively getting some of what they want. So they don't have a strong incentive to do differently. It may be that we're just going to have to wait a couple of election cycles, including this year's, uh, and see if the House goes to the Democrats to force people to talk to each other. When you control everything, um, it's very easy to sort of neglect the other side. But when you only control part of the process and you have to make deals, then you have to work with each other. And it may be in the end that voters will be – the correct influence on this process. That was Joe Tuman. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. for my closing remarks. During the Super Bowl, Dodge trucks used a portion of Martin Luther King's Drum Major Instinct sermon to align themselves with King's definition of service. The commercial aired on the 50th anniversary of the sermon, given exactly two months before King was assassinated, and also served as the eulogy at King's funeral. We can now add Dodge to Apple computers, McDonald's restaurants, Rolex watches and others who have made King part of the marketing campaign. 
I thought it would be appropriate to allow Dr. King to have the last word. This, too, taken from the same sermon used by Dodge, here are King's thoughts on the marketing practices of corporations. Uh, the presence of this instinct explains why we are so often taken by advertisers. You know, uh, those gentlemen of massive verbal persuasion, and they have a way of saying things to you that kind of gets you in the bind. In order to be a man of distinction, you must drink this whiskey. In order to make your neighbors envious, you must drive this type of car. In order to be lovely to love, you must wear this kind of uh, lipstick or this kind of perfume. And you know, before you know it, you're just buying that stuff. Uh, that's the way the advertisers do it. I got a letter the other day, and uh, it was a magazine coming out and opened up, opened up. Dear Dr. King, as you know, you are on many mailing lists. And uh, you are categorized as highly intelligent, progressive, a lover of the arts and the sciences. And I know you will want to read what I have to say. Of course I did. After you said all of that and explained me so exactly, of course I wanted to read it. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcast can be found at our website, which is publicmorality.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast version on iTunes. You can also follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.